0: Hello and welcome to Be With Champions. I'm your host, Greg Bennett. And on today's episode, I chat with the Olympic triathlon champion, Gwen Jorgensen. And, and this episode, honestly, was one of my favorite of all chats on this show. Um, I, I just really was impressed with the, the discipline and the maturity of Gwen and just how much of a complete, well-rounded athlete and person that she is. And And what I really loved about this episode was her really amazing self-awareness and living her honest truthful life um not being steered by what other people think she should do but what's truly in her own heart and what she's passionate about just an incredible athlete incredible role model if if you're enjoying this show please share subscribe um give me any reviews any feedbacks but thanks so much for listening and enjoy this one i really did All right. Today, I have an incredible guest who's not afraid to test herself and go places she's never been before. Accountant, turned professional triathlete, turned professional runner. Her rise to the top of the world of triathlon was rapid. She became a professional triathlete in 2010, and by 2011, she'd earned a spot on the US Olympic team for the London Olympic Games. By 2013, she was winning her first ITU World Series events, and by 2014, She was winning the ITU Triathlon World Series title, which she repeated again in 2015, with an undefeated 2015 and an almost perfect 2014. And in 2016, she took gold at the Rio Olympic Games and managed to back that up with silver in the ITU World Triathlon Series that same year. In 2017, she became a mother of a beautiful boy and later announced her retirement from triathlon and her career shift to professional running. She's one of the world's all-time greatest athletes. Welcome and thank you for joining me on Beer With Champions, Mrs. Gwen Jorgensen. How are you, Gwen?
1: I'm doing pretty well. Um, you know, this time is obviously a little bit difficult for everyone with stay at mm. home and everything, but overall, um, been enjoying the time with my family.
0: Yeah, you're missing, you're still able to get out and run though, right, in Portland?
1: Yes, I am. I was actually just thinking this morning how thankful I am that I am just running and I don't have to be worried about a pool. Um, you know, I am able to get out and run and, and still train. So my life is, I think, really fortunate right now because I have more mm. time at home, but I'm also able to do what I love.
0: Mm, well, I mean, that's the mind of a champion right there, though, too. it's always a, the people that can kind of appreciate and have tremendous gratitude for what they actually do have and and sort of keep their, that sort of, I wouldn't say positive mindset, but that neutral mindset where you're not allowing the negativity to get you down. And it's kind of like, okay, embrace what I do have around me. And and, you know, like you said, you're getting to spend more time with family. You're getting to get out and run still. I mean, I don't are you still able to run with your squad a little bit?
1: Um, not really. Um, you know, our coach is just sending us individual workouts and sometimes mm. there's like four different tracks that we're all spreading out at. So sometimes <laughs> I see them at the track, but yeah, it's um Yeah, I don't get to see them. I'm not running with them every day, which is something that I definitely miss.
0: Yeah, yeah. I um, I want to sort of start the show by looking at these past couple of years, um, the most recent years, because I think the last time we probably were hanging out was almost 2012 Olympics when you were on the Olympic team with my wife Laura, the US team, and then we might have seen each other a couple of times post that. But I feel so much has happened in your life you know obviously you went on to just dominate the world series in triathlon for a bit like i said and then you you know won the olympic games and then you 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 had your beautiful son stanley and and that was your focus for a year and then it was like okay now i'm going to go to running and and so i kind of want to start with the running side and not just the running but being a mother and being you know a professional athlete and a mother which to me is Extraordinary. Um, well, and you've I seen had, it
1: firsthand with your kids.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, <laughs> Laura did it the other way around. She kind of retired and then had kids. And and both Laura and I, we we we're just blown away by um, yourself, um, Miranda Carfrey. Um, there's a whole bunch of uh, women at the same time that had kids that have just done extraordinary things to be able to keep pushing and still be great moms. You know, and. and I, I'm fascinated how you did that, and we'll go into a bit more detail of that, but I'm also fascinated about your running career. And why I'm fascinated about it is, for me, I was I loved triathlon. I loved it, swim, bike, run, but I, I loved the people and I loved the energy of the sport. But when it came to my training, I was a talented biker, but running was always my passion, and I was never to your level of running, but it was like, wow, I just love running and running fast. And for you, that transition from triathlon to running, was it sheerly out of passion or were you kind of had done everything you wanted to do in triathlon and just had sort of had enough? What what was it that made that shift happen for you?
1: Yeah, it was definitely both of those things plus some other things. You know, I felt like I I was recruited into the sport of triathlon. It it chose me. I didn't choose it. Um, hmm. and, and, yes, I... I guess I, you know, enjoyed it. I had to enjoy it, um, in order to do it for that long and to have that much success. But like you said, I was similar to you in that the running is what I truly loved. And there were years in triathlon where every day I'd show up at the pool, I'd be mopey. I'd hate it. I didn't (laughs) want to get in. I remember my coach would be like, you have to like, what's wrong? Why do you look so sad? And I'm like, well, it's raining outside and I have to get in a cold pool. And, you know, I just, I didn't like it. Um, But there was other parts of the sport, kind of like you said, I love the people. Um, I loved being able to run. And, you know, biking, I actually, I do enjoy. And that's something that my husband and I come together on um, and and do because he used to be a professional cyclist. So Mm -hmm. there was a lot of things I I liked, but there were certain things that I just dreaded. And Mm -hmm. the thought of having to do a whole other cycle, a whole new four-year quad um, Mm -hmm. and doing something I didn't like. Just to go after something I've already accomplished, it just it wasn't motivating. Like I didn't find any reason to try to accomplish the same goal. I I put my heart, my energy into that goal, and I accomplished it. And there was just zero motivation to want to accomplish the same thing.
0: Mm. It's it's staying very true and very real to yourself. One of the things we see in sport quite often is is we see, and, and Laura and I use the example. We see a lot of athletes going, I'm going to go to the Olympics. I want to go to the Olympics. And they haven't really stepped back and thought, is that really what I want? It's often what everybody else wants around you. Everybody else wants you to go to the Olympics because that's what, you're an athlete, you must want to go to the Olympics. (laughs) And and, you've got to step back and go, well, hang on, is that what you truly want? Be honest with yourself. And that's what you've done, which is absolutely incredible and and such a mature way to, to approach it.
1: Yeah, that actually brings me back to a memory when I qualified for my first Olympics, uh, 2012, when um, you know I was with Laura training and um, competing, and I remember I qualified and I felt guilty. I was kind of wishy-washy about it. I felt like maybe I don't know. I felt in some weird way like I didn't deserve it, um, even though I had put in work. I'd been an athlete my entire life, and I remember. Uh, Jonathan Hall, actually, who was USA Triathlon's um, high performance director, I think at the time, I can't remember his title at that time, but he sat me down and he said, do you want to go to the Olympics? And this was after I qualified. And I just kind of stared at him like no one's ever asked me that question. And I've never actually thought about it. Like, do (laughs) I actually want to go? And that was definitely a, a career changing moment for me.
0: I, I get what you're saying it's funny because when I started the sport we weren't in the Olympics so I often people are like oh the Olympics was everything and don't get me wrong <laughs> the Olympics is wonderful but I I was I'd fallen in love with the sport when I say fall in love I I love the sport because I was good at it at the end of the day you, you're drawn to things where you're good at it and people pat you on the back and give you that kind of like and, and when you're a 17 18 year old kid and 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 people are patting you on the back saying, you're pretty good at this. You're like, oh, yeah, maybe I'll keep doing it more. And like you, I was always struggled to get into the swimming pool. And, uh, (laughs) you know, I was like for years going, ah, I can't stand it. And But I love the pats on the back. And I liked being good at something. I actually liked trying to be the best in the world at something. Now, that something ended up giving me a lot. It gave me my wife, my family, my career. It gave me so much and so many great friendships along the way. But to say I loved it the whole way is absolutely not the case. And I want to touch on one thing. I interviewed uh, Chris McCormack uh, a number of episodes ago. And, and yep. Chris Chris had an, a quote that you can probably use going forward. And <laughs> he called it when he won the 99, 97 World Championships, so he would have been 23, 24, pretty young. And he said he had this real imposter syndrome that he'd turned up as this kind of like you in the 2012 Olympics, you suddenly yeah. thrust thrust there and you're like, whoa, 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 is this, should I be here? I, he, and, and he really, you know, he's a he's a very colorful character and and the way he describes it is that I had just enormous imposter syndrome that I, he didn't feel that he should be the world champion and and he had to sort of grow into that over time. Is that kind of what happened to you? That kind of 2012 was like, okay, I'm here, but then you kind of took ownership of it pretty soon after then.
1: Yeah, for sure. I would say I had that imposter syndrome. I've never heard that before. I like that. Um, (laughs) And, you know, it took me a while. I remember I I was really thankful because right after I qualified for the Olympics, uh, qualified in 2011, I remember I went on a family holiday. My family had come over to watch the London race where I qualified. And then we went to Denmark. And I just remember feeling so good that I had family and people that I could just... Mm -hmm get out of the triathlon world for a little bit. Cause I, I didn't know what to do. I felt guilty. I felt like other people looked at me like I didn't deserve it. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, like you said earlier, a lot of sport, uh, when you are patted on the back, when you're doing well, it makes it fun. Um, but if you, f- if you do well and you don't feel like you're getting that pat on the back, it's a very interesting dynamic that for me took probably a couple months to, to fully. Uh, take on board. I remember I skipped the world championship that year in 2011, just because mentally I wasn't able to get my head in the game. And uh, mm. thankfully, I feel like I came back for 2012 and then I was super focused and knew exactly what I wanted to accomplish in
0: 2016. Mm. And and that was a, I mean, that's just it. You had to take ownership of that so quickly. It's like in sport, you get you get these opportunity, opportunities and they're kind of fleeting quite often, you know, and you're like, well, you know, I could sit here and wallow and wonder if I should, I should have a it, deserved it or not, or you can kind of go, hang on, I've got it. Let's try and get on top of this and and make the most of the opportunity. So let me go back to what what we were talking about. And and that is really this this step to running. And I think that that what you painted that picture of triathlon is, look, I loved it, but I didn't want it to consume me and own me for the rest of my life. But my, my passion for running, I want to be able to see what I can do. And And I guess by having that career in triathlon, it established you with some of the resources that you wouldn't have had had you gone into running otherwise with some great sponsorships and and some sort of finance behind you. And then you're like, well, I'm still young enough to give this running a good crack. Now, it hasn't been all smooth sailing. You know, I think (laughs) uh, from I watch your YouTube show, I I love what you and Pat and, um, you know, um, Talbot, Talbot yeah. Cox is just doing phenomenal job. Anybody that wants to watch some great footage of a guy doing incredible work, Talbot Cox is doing um, your show, uh, the the Tio and Rini show. There's a couple of sh- you know athletes that he's doing incredible work with. But anyway, huge fan of what he's doing and what he's doing with you guys. So I've watched a, a lot of those. And um, 2018, you you're still breastfeeding Stanley. You uh, you're obviously taking on the motherhood role very seriously. You're trying to get, build this new career. You, you've joined the Bauman Track Club, and you're running with some of the greatest female athletes, well, and men, men on the planet. Um, how was that transition? Was that did you feel comfortable right away, or did it take a little while to adjust?
1: There were so many adjustments. Um, you know, having a kid uh, and then trying to make a switch in sport. It was just. A lot. That first year was incredibly difficult, and I think uh, more so it was just so difficult because I had Stanley. And that first year, you're not getting a lot of sleep. You're breastfeeding. I'm trying to figure out when can I sleep, and um, I think that lack of sleep really affected how I could perform that year. But at the same mm-hmm. time, I got some PRs, and I felt like okay, you know, um, I'm I'm learning this sport. I need to um, continue to push. And for me, like you said earlier, it was all about. I'm super passionate about it. And I haven't found my potential in running. And I really want to find where my potential and where my limit is. In triathlon, I noticed every year my running was getting better and better. I thought, well, what if I focus full time on running? Like, How good can I be? Mm. And yeah, so I did that. And then I had to have surgery. Um, I had a Hagelin's deformity, which is a bone overgrowth in the heel that actually formed when I was pregnant and running and my shoes were too small because um, I don't know if this happened to Laura, but my feet grew and I didn't realize it. And I was running in Mm -hmm. shoes that were too small and it was rubbing against my heel and caused this deformity. And so I had run for, um, you know, two plus years with this pain and it just became unbearable and I had to have surgery. And so I just feel like I've had um, a lot of setbacks in running and definitely, hasn't been easy. But I think back to my triathlon career and I had so many setbacks and Mm. you look back at people's careers and, you know, you introduced me and you talked about all the positives, but you didn't talk about my DNFs or the races (laughs) that I was, you know, the 20th fastest runner when I should have been the first fastest runner. And nobody talks about that.
0: No, I should have introduced you like that going, yeah, she's done a (laughs) couple of okay things, but really she's really been injured and on the sidelines most of her career
1: (laughs) you know like we we don't remember those hardships no, and I, I look back at my triathlon career and I had times when I wanted to quit I had times when I was racing way under my potential and for me I I've learned so much from triathlon and I've learned that if you keep focusing on the daily techniques the daily processes the things that you're supposed to do right that eventually it will pay off on race day
0: mm. I, I sometimes feel like you and Laura have a lot of similarities um for those listening, You know, Gwen and Laura share the same birthday, 11 years apart, April 25th. So five days from when this episode comes out. Um, You're both five foot nine. You're both very similar weight when you get down to your your race weights. You both have the finance and and accounting background in in your studies and careers before triathlon. You both have a very, I think because you both have such long levers, it's a long way from your foot to your brain. So, what I mean by that, Laura, Laura and I often laugh about it. We we look at the little pocket rockets like the Marinda Carfreys yeah. and the Emma Snowsills, and they tend to go through their careers relatively uninjured. And when I say relative, there's a, there's always niggles and things. But I feel for you and Laura and and some of the taller, longer athletes, there tends to be. Something that's happening in the foot, it takes longer for it to get to the brain. And, you know, there's this <laughs> whole, we laugh about it like this, and I'm probably completely scientifically and off. But there, is, there does tend to be, you know, one thing Laura said to me, you know, the strength that I had to have in my core and my glutes to to manage my feet had to be so much more because I was such long levers. And, yep. you know, I watched like a Jan fredino um, who's you know a six foot three six foot four you know multiple world champion but he's had to deal a lot with his feet because he's such a tall guy and and you guys have to work so hard at your biomechanics and body work and everything else and and one thing Laura always says to me Greg you know I look back at my career and I was probably injured Half the time. She's like, <laughs> and when I could go six months, 12 months with no injuries, it's amazing what I could do. But boy, yep. there was always an injury around the corner. So you guys have a lot of similarities there.
1: Yes, for sure. And I think, you know, there is something with being having longer levers and being taller. First of all, if you're taller, you're going to weigh more. Even if you're super skinny, you're still going to weigh more because you're taller. And so I think just having more body mass that's going through everything can tend to cause some more injuries. And I also think with the long lever thing, like I've realized just in my gym work, like I need to alter some of my techniques. I can't always get down to the ground when I'm doing a hex bar Mm -hmm. lift, like all my teammates, like some of them step up on, uh, to, Each foot is on like a block and they get even lower than the ground when they go down. But my levers are so long that I'm not able to do that. And that wouldn't even be smart for me. I'd probably injure myself. So there are some different things. And I think it's super, um, you know, people don't really talk about that a lot of how different body types have to adjust and adapt to different training.
0: I know we uh, we always laugh about it because uh, you worked with uh, Dr. Alex Keith, our chiropractor, and the US yeah, Olympic yeah. chiropractor. Bit, and so I've worked with uh, Dr. Alex Keith since 2005, I think. And we worked together for years and years. And he ended up calling me the bumblebee because he couldn't figure out how my body did what it did. Because he <laughs> said, you know, bumblebees, for people who don't know, they're not meant to be able to fly. Like the physics just, it doesn't Nobody can figure Makes out sense, how they yeah. can apply. And, <laughs> and so he started calling me the bumblebee because he's like, your body, it just doesn't make sense. He said, everything's wrong about it. You know, I, and I <laughs> had that my whole career, everybody telling me, because I, my my flexibility, I have locked ankles, which means I, I cannot squat. I cannot squat. I cannot get my my thighs past 90 degrees. No way. There, there's just absolutely no way. But what happened is we started to realize that it became very powerful on the bike, having very locked ankles. I didn't mm-hmm. have, yeah. and and I was good for short. Running for because I was missing a lever, but it was all power. But when it came to the marathon and the longer stuff, because I didn't have that extra lever, there was a lot of trauma on the body. And anyway, there's when you said you know we're all very different biomechanically, and we don't you know you can't put a round peg in in a square hole. We're all yep. kind of different, and you've got to make do with the best of what you've got. And that's what you're doing. I mean, when we look at 2018, and you've come out, you you've you're breastfeeding, you're dealing with all the things that I've watched Laura, especially with our first child, she dealt with a lot more of the engorgement and those kinds of things Ugh, um, so and hard. having <laughs> to pump and all these things that I had no idea yeah. about until this world, right? And, and I'm sorry for listeners that don't have kids, but for, for anybody that's <laughs> gone through it, it, it can be quite stressful, you know, trying to keep this, this, this little person alive and, and you're trying to keep your own body maintenance going and provide the right breast milk and all of that sort of stuff. But you still came out in 2018 and ran a five k. You ran a fifteen fifteen, and a ten k and a thirty one fifty five. I mean, these are almost your Olympic standard times. So just shy. I think I, I looked up just before the show. An Olympic standard time for your five k is a fifteen ten. You're only five yeah. seconds off, right? And and the the ten k, you you what is that? I think you're twenty seconds off the Olympic standard time. Very close, whatever it is. Yeah. Um, so you you I can see that you've come out. And you've, you've got a really good look in at these things. I know you were kind of looking at the marathon. Um, tell me a little bit about that and, and why why was it the marathon that interest, interested you most most to begin with and then why sort of go back to the 5 and 10K now? What's been the thinking with that?
1: Yeah, the, the marathon was so exciting for me and is so exciting for me because I feel like it's the pinnacle event of mm. the Olympics everyone knows the marathon i feel like it's just iconic mm. and synonymous with the olympics and and that's something that really draws me and you know when i was thinking about making the switch there were so many things i looked at i looked at you know my vo2 max and what do we think i'm capable of in a 10k and what do we think we're capable of in a marathon and you know i compared the olympic distance triathlon is an endurance event for about 2 hours and the marathon is an endurance event for yeah two and a half hours and or 220 if you're, you know, the best. And so I kind of looked at those things when I was making a decision. Mm. And when I came out and ran those fast track times, I was almost kind of shocked because I wasn't doing track training. I was doing marathon. So kind of, you know, slower, mm. um, longer things. And so I was pretty happy with that 1515. I was like, Whoa, this is, this is good. And then I, I just thought, well, think about what I can do in the marathon now. Um, mm-hmm. and yeah, so, you know, I went on to, to do a marathon under Jerry and it was horrible. Um, I, I remember I, I don't, it only matters what happens on race day. Um, mm-hmm. but at the same time I was sick, you know, I, the day I traveled to Chicago, mm-hmm. I had a fever of 102 Mm. Um, the day before the race, I had a fever over a hundred and I remember thinking, you know what? I've done triathlon races where I've been sick before. It's no problem. I'm just going (laughs) to do it. I'm good. And I think there's a big difference in running a sprint triathlon and a marathon. Mm. And there's also a big difference with having a head cold versus a fever.
0: Mm. Mm. Uh, That's brutal to do any kind of race. And it's actually very dangerous, (laughs) <laughs> um, for your long-term health, by the way. I, I mean, you know this, and so I don't mean to lecture you like a dad, but it's actually uh, I remember back in the mid-90s they had a, a race in Russia, in St. Petersburg, Russia, and a lot of the athletes got fairly ill. Greg Welsh was one of Australia's best athletes, yep. uh, Ben Bright. Uh, it was Goodwill Games in St. Petersburg. So Goodwill Games was a, a, a games that came on sort of after the Cold War was over and Um, every four years it was almost like the olympic games but it was really just to show that sport can bring countries together and especially america and 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 russia and 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 anyway they all went and did this race and they all got pretty sick from it but what happened that really set them all back is when they got sick and then they kept racing and and i know with greg welsh one of the things that he he now had the whole heart condition like a lot of the endurance athletes has and what he has told me and i'll have him on the show shortly but is that pushing through those viruses that were in us in that intense time really did hurt his heart. So, you know, just it, it, for people listening, if you are sick, if you do have a hundred degree, 102 degree Fahrenheit, I don't know what that is in Celsius, but if you are <laughs> carrying a fever, um, it is best to just step aside and, and and pull the trigger another day. Even if you've paid a, an exorbitant entry fee, which a lot of you will for, for a lot of these events, it's, it is best to step off the course, but I can understand your mindset that you've prepared months for this day, um, yep. th- there's all the media and sponsorship and fanfare that goes with it. And it's like, like you said, I've been able to fake it before in, in triathlon, but running is a different beast in terms of faking it. It's There's nowhere oh, ever to hide in running. Yes. It's, it's you you <laughs> yeah. in the pavement and you get seen for everything. And um, so, I, yeah, that that's not a fair thing to measure yourself on going forward, <laughs> but, but uh, you know, because you know you weren't, you weren't ready In terms of your own health and so then what happened after Chicago
1: yeah after running the marathon in Chicago um, you know I was in bed for three weeks I couldn't do anything Um, like you said it's not good for your health (laughs) Mm -hmm. and I remember thinking well at least my my Achilles will heal at least in this time off and it didn't (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. and you know I tried to make a comeback like three or four I, you know, I I tried to make a comeback after taking all that time off. It still was painful. So I got PRP, um, plate, platelet rich Mm. plasma injected in there. Um, Mm. and then tried to build up again. It still wasn't good. And so that's when I made the decision to to have surgery.
0: Mm. And that it's so stressful. I, I feel for Pat right now, listening to that <laughs> it's, I feel. I always feel for the spouse when I hear these because yeah. I know what we're like. I, I know professional yeah. athletes, and there's yeah. a lot of there is a lot of pressure and stress, and mostly the pressure and stress you put on yourself. But you do feel accountable to sponsors and your fans and and everybody else, and and it's and I know you that you wouldn't have taken getting surgery lightly. That no. yeah, you know, you
1: know it. It. I think there's a lot of things when you have chronic pain. Um, you're just not yourself mentally, physically. You can't push as hard in workouts because mm. you're you're focusing so much on the pain you do have that you can't overcome the other pain. Um mm. as well mentally. You know, I was I was not a happy person just because I had pain, chronic pain every single day, like walking around, getting up. And so you should feel for Patrick and, and Stanley even, you know, there was time <laughs> family would be like, Hey, I want a book. And I'd say, you know what? Mom can't walk over there to get a book. So sorry. (laughs) Um, And, you know, there's just times like that, that were, that were devastating. And like you said, I think the hardest part, once I decided to have surgery, I was actually relieved because I knew I couldn't continue um, in sport with, with this. I just couldn't. Um, I knew I couldn't even continue life basically without it. You know, it just, it was impeding everything. And Um, once I decided to get the surgery, it was almost a relief, but then, you know, after a couple weeks after I had surgery, it was all those thoughts you were saying, like my one job is to go out there and perform and I can't right now. And I felt guilty and I had, um, you know, sponsors were sticking with me and I just felt like I haven't proven myself. I haven't done anything. My last race was a dud and now I got surgery and, it, it was, it was difficult during those times. And I think what got me through and what allowed me to um, get through that was just one having Patrick and Stanley, it was kind of nice to have Stanley mm-hmm. at that time, just to have a distraction. And you know, he really shows you like, we can have fun, mom, it doesn't matter if you're in a boot or what's happening. And um, as well, knowing that I can reach my potential if I'm healthy. So having this surgery was was a must. And I think those things really helped me overcome during that time.
0: I think, you know, it's interesting. I had Alistair Brownlee on last week and you both, you know, obviously won the Rio Olympics together for triathlon. um, And his stories are very similar that, you know, he dealt with a lot of issues um, and and had to have a couple of surgeries himself. and, And we were both, you know, concluding that, you know, the one thing we love is the actual the pushing and the training hard um doing their day-to-day details the body work the <laughs> biomechanics the, gy- <laughs> the gym work none of us love and that was the yeah. reason i retired i retired at 44 which was pretty late but i got tired of doing the little things i love the training hard and i love the racing but in order for me to do those things it started to become so consuming um and, and he like you um after sort of that 2016 period needed a break he'd been dealing with so much that he then and then he decided to, rather than go to running, he did attempt running a bit like you and did do the Stanford 10k and bits and pieces like like you. Yeah. But he decided he'd give the long course stuff a go and and that didn't you know he dealt with a lot through 2017 and 2018 and finally getting his body going. Um, you know he's become one of the world's best 70.3 half Ironman distance athletes. He's given Kona a crack and now he's decided okay I'll come back with my brother Johnny Brownlee and I'll give you know Tokyo Olympics a crack, which he thought was going to be 2020 now 2021. For him, <laughs> for him, we've decided it's probably good to have the extra year so he can yeah. try and get his speed back, and so he's uh, a bit relieved. But the other thing when we were talking about the pressure of stepping away with injuries or stepping away to have a baby is you're far more than what you are just on a given day, you know week, month. You are a true ambassador. Of world sport. You are a name that is synonymous with endurance sport, with professional athletes and a professional woman and a mother. There's so much more. So when you talk about your sponsors and am I doing enough for them, you are by already what you've done just blows away 99% of the rest of them out there. And so all you've got to do now is if you can have Talbot do the occasional social media and you guys do an amazing job with that, The so long as you have a little bit of content and and you're very authentic and you share the horror stories because we're all dealing with them. We're All of us yeah. have got a lot of junk going on in our lives and none of our lives are perfect. And you're a great example of showing all that. And your legacy, whatever it ends up being, is, is going to be the Olympic Games. It's going to be a great mother to Stanley and, and a great wife to Pat. And there's a, so much more to you than just... You know what you're dealing with on a day to day. That, but I can appreciate what you're feeling. Like, how come your sponsors are even staying by me? But if I was a sponsor, I would have <laughs> left you. So I do, oh. but I do understand where you're coming from. Um, but what I'd like to do now is I, I'd like to wind the clock right back and sort of when did you first find your passion for well, sport, but endurance sport, and in, in specifically, and like you mentioned earlier, you know, triathlon found you. You didn't find triathlon. But take me through the whole process of whether it was swimming, running, and and how you grew up in your childhood and and how you found endurance sport.
1: Yeah, so I grew up and I loved swimming. My grandma actually had a swimming pool in her backyard, and I would ask to go there every single day in the summer. I would ask to stay longer. My parents would get so sick of it. Um, and. And I always say that they enrolled me in swim team because they just wanted to spend less time at grandma's pool. And the opposite actually happened where I just had this huge love for swimming and I was constantly in the water. They could never get me out. My poor parents had to, you know, drop me off at anyone who's a swimmer growing up knows, you know, the 5 a.m. drop-offs and sitting in the hot chlorinated pool decks for hours on end and days And my parents were just great through all that. And and for swimming, I just loved it. And I think I loved it growing up because it was, it was my thing. No one else in my family was a swimmer. No one encouraged me to do it. And it was just my thing. And I loved being able to get in that water. It was just me and the lane and push myself and see how fast I could go. And there was no outside variables. It was just me. And, and that's something I just absolutely loved. And it's, it's interesting because that's what I ended up hating in, in triathlon, but I, I think, was going
0: to say, <laughs>
1: <laughs> I think it was just, you know, as a swimmer, you spend years and years and I wouldn't recommend doing what I did as a kid because I was in middle school and I remember my mom made me play the violin and. I had a recital like once every six months and it would always overlap with some practice. And I would have to go super early or go super late somewhere to get in my swim workout. And I was just obsessive like about swimming. I couldn't go on family holidays, like any holidays. I said, Nope, can't go there. Cause there's no pool. It, it was this unhealthy relationship I had with swimming. And, um, you know, I ended up going to, college and swimming at the University of Wisconsin for my first three years and I just I wasn't improving I you know I was coming early to practice I was asking the coaches to help tape my uh, film my stroke so that we could analyze it and see how I could get faster and I just I wasn't good like I was good enough to be on a d1 team but I wasn't NCAA all-American I wasn't I wasn't getting any accolades in college mm-hmm. and after three years, I, my, one of my high school, he was kind of a track coach. Cause I ran, I ran track, uh, for two years in high school, but I never went to practice. I'd just go to the meets on the weekend. <laughs> um, <laughs> he, he actually approached me and said, you know, you're pretty good at running. You, you should run in college. And so I kind of felt like I was burnt out of swimming and I had given everything I could and I just wasn't seeing any results. And when you work hard for years and years and years and see zero results, it just, it drains on you. And I made the switch to running and immediately, you know, within a year I was um, at NCAAs and a big 10 champion. And it was funny because when I made that switch, I refused to go in the water. Like, I don't think I went in a swimming pool for two or three years um, until actually USA triathlon recruited me into the the sport of triathlon. And that was at the end of my college re- career and Barb Lindquist had come to me and we probably talked for months um, before she convinced me to do triathlon. And I, I did triathlon, um, not knowing what to expect. I remember I was still working. I said, there's no way I'm going to do this full time. I had actually wanted to compete in running. I wanted to be a professional runner. And I talked to my college running coach and he said, I don't think you're good enough. I don't think you can do it. He's like, you could do it, but you'd only be getting paid like five grand. You can't really support yourself off of that. Mm-hmm. And, and for me, I have always been really big been really big on being independent. Um, you know, I didn't want to rely on my parents, even though they said, this is your only time to to do an athletic career. Like we will help you. We will support you. You're, you know, once you get old, you can't do this. This is your time. Okay. Uh, but for me, I, I just wanted to be independent and I thought if I can't do it on my own, there's no point to doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was working as an accountant and, Doing triathlon after they convinced me to do it, and mm-hmm. you know, within a year, qualified for the Olympics, and was just like, "Holy smokes, we maybe I can be an Olympian, maybe I can do this." And and that's kind of when I had a big shift um, in mindset and focus, and stopped working and and focused full time as triathlon as my job.
0: Uh, that that's an extraordinary little journey. What I love about that is is um, that. Swimming, although you weren't improving during those college years, it's almost like when you did transition to triathlon, you, like I said at the top of the show, you had a rapid rise in triathlon, but it was because of those grinding years in swimming that you probably built up this huge engine, you know, that you might not have got the accolades there, but immediately you got them in triathlon. And so it's almost like this imposter syndrome that we talked about in 2011, 2012, making the Olympics. Well, hang on you guys didn't see all the work I was doing behind the scenes in the pool, you know, that, and I wasn't getting any accolades and I wasn't getting, a where did the, where did this discipline and maturity come from? Is it ingrained in your family or is it all self, you know, I, I, and I asked that mainly because like I'm using Laura again to have an example because you guys are similar. She found the swimming pool, when she was younger and she loved it because she didn't have a lot of discipline at home. Her parents were very supportive and great parents, but it wasn't a disciplined house like I grew up in. But she found discipline in the pool and she found that she could be on her own exactly like you said. Is that how you found your discipline or did you have it at home already?
1: I was very... I was a very disciplined child. I didn't, I never wanted to break a rule. I always wanted to be well-behaved, but my parents never forced it on me. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, they, they encouraged me and my sister to both choose one sport, choose one instrument. Um, you know, and they wanted us to be involved in things, but they didn't pressure us in any way to do something. They never, if I, if I failed at swimming or had a bad recital, I never got in trouble. Um, I have just always, I think, been internally motivated to do my best and to push my limits. And I'm, I'm not exactly sure where that came from. I do think, you know, a lot of children, um, they want structure and you want they want some sort of discipline in a good way where they, you know, mm-hmm. they know if they do X, Y, Z, it, it will be rewarded. And um, I feel like I was like that growing up. I just, I wanted to put in the work and and see results, and and really, I got enjoyment out of that structure and and out of that discipline.
0: Mm. And and so along that journey, then you was there a point where you were like, okay, so swimming, you were getting enough pats on the back. College, you started to feel like, yeah, you wanted to go for a run. Did you kind of see yourself as? I mean, the coach said that he didn't think you could have a professional career, but could you? see yourself as an Olympic runner? Did you kind of have that in you? Was there that kind of belief in your own talent and strength that you could be a professional runner or is there a a bit of self-doubt?
1: I I remember growing up, I wanted to be an Olympic swimmer when I was swimming and I was younger. And I was like, I'm going to go to the Olympics. I remember clinging to the TV and every (laughs) Olympic cycle and watching every swimming event. And, um, you know, I never even made the Olympic trials in swimming Mm. and in running, I felt like, you know what I, I can make the Olympic trials. I don't think I believed I could make the Olympics. I think my dream of the Olympics died completely in, in swimming when I realized I'm just not a good enough athlete. Mm -hmm. And I really believe that that dream was just totally, it was jumped on, it was pounded into the sand, it was gone. And I think that's another reason why when I qualified for the Olympics in triathlon, I was, I felt guilty almost because I was like no no I, I already wanted to be an Olympian and I know that I'm not capable of that and so um yeah I think in running I still had that uh, mentality from swimming of me just thinking I wasn't a good enough athlete
0: isn't that incredible I love that story actually because it's here you are really pushing it to sports swimming and running and it's almost like somebody's put out a hand and said hang on <laughs> Here's a here's a pathway for you. Stop yep. beating your head against a brick wall. Come over to this sport. Had you heard of triathlon before then?
1: When Barb Lindquist contacted me, I had no idea that it was an Olympic sport. And I was like, I'm not going to Kona. I don't want to do an Ironman. <laughs> <laughs> she like had to explain the whole thing to me. And um, I was very confused about it. Um, but I remember, you know, she said, on paper, Gwen, you're going to be an Olympian. And I just was like, ah, no, you don't know me. That's not true. <laughs> mm. So yeah, it was uh, an interesting journey. And you know, I have Barb to thank. And I just look back at that, and I was like, I had so many people during that time, my early transition into triathlon, that believed in me. I had a swimming coach, actually, um, Dave Anderson in in Milwaukee. And I remember he was he was like, you are going to be an Olympian. You can do this. I know it. And I had all these people telling me this, but I never actually believed it. And I just. Mm think back to that time. And I think, wow, I am so fortunate that I had people that believed in me and who stuck with me when I didn't believe in myself. And Mm. I think there's a lot of talented people out there who maybe just didn't get that nudge and and weren't able to see their dreams fulfilled.
0: Yeah, it's, it's incredible. I mean, it works two ways. It's funny, Laura and I always say, there's the people that are lifting you up and the people that are lifting you up by pulling you down. And what I mean by that is the naysayers and the ones that say you can't do it, Almost inspire yep, yep. you more than the ones that do put you up. So oh, yeah. I mean, look,
1: <laughs> I think of uh, my one of my most proud races, like I might almost be more proud of it than the Olympics, but I can never say that.
0: Um, is you, you can is, to uh, me because I get
1: <laughs> it <laughs> is uh, a race in Stockholm that I won, and I remember I went into it, it's cobblestone. Did you race on Stockholm ever? Did you ever race I never
0: did. I had a crash the week before in, in, uh, oh. gosh, in, in 1997. So a long, long time ago, but I'd won Monte Carlo the two weeks before and was one of the favorites. And then I, I had a bike crash uh, the week before oh, and everybody said how wonderful so it was, sad. but I've watched it a million times. So I feel like I've yeah. been there, but yeah, go well, on.
1: It's <laughs> And there's like hills and it's technical. And this was early in my career. And I remember everyone saying, you're going to be horrible at it. Don't go to it it's just a really bad race for you. You're horrible on the bike. It's going to be bad, bad, bad. And I showed up and, you know, I had one of my best swims ever. I had a great bike and I won it. And it was one of the first races I won. And I just remember being like, it was that naysayer pushing Mm. me up. I wanted to prove to people that I Mm. wasn't just a runner. Like I am a whole triathlete. And, um, yeah, that was kind of an instance, like you were talking about, it just reminded me of those naysayers pulling Mm. you up.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I know they really they really are powerful. <laughs> just 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 going back to Barb because Barb Link for the people that don't know, um, incredible athlete in her own right. And uh I spent much of my career, you know, Laura was on teams world championship teams with, with her for for many, many years. And actually Barb, I think, stayed with us in Australia for a month or so and had Christmas with Aww. us. So I, I know I know her very well and just a shout out to Bob for her incredible recruiting and what she's doing, especially for the women's program in the US here because it hasn't been just you. There's been Katie Zafaris and, and a number of athletes. You know, Katie just won the World Series last year and incredible women athlete that are, are coming out because of her ability to do her homework and see these great athletes that were swimmers or runners in, you know, university. And then like you, I think you were working full-time at Erston Young already, weren't you? Were you kind of that was your job and you were on your way?
1: Yeah. So I actually, I had a full-time job. I was still in college when Barb first called me and talked to me. Um, And I said like, no, when school's over, I'm doing this job. And I didn't actually transition. I didn't actually start triathlon until like a month or two into my uh, accounting career when I was working full-time. And Barb was just persistent, but persistent in the nicest way. Like, every Mm -hmm. time she called, I wanted to pick up. I wanted to talk to her. She was just this amazing human that had so many wise things to say. And I feel like she was, she's probably one of my best mentors I've ever had in my life. She's taught Mm -hmm. me so much, not just about sport and triathlon, but just about how to be a a genuine good person. And, you know, Mm -hmm. so for me, I, it was months and months that she would call, you know, once a week, once every two weeks and we'd just chat and she was like a friend to me. And, um, I just, I, I have so much to, to thank her for. Um, you know, I definitely wouldn't have, I wouldn't be living this life that I just absolutely love if it wasn't for her. And it's crazy to think about that. Like what you've heard so far, then make sure you never miss a podcast by clicking the subscribe button now. This show is only made possible by you, the listener. And if you'd like to support Greg, please visit the Be With Champions Patreon page. Your support,
0: very much appreciated. Now, back to the show. And so was there a point there where you were like, okay, I'm going all in on triathlon and this is my life. I'm going to live with absolute intent and try and be the best in the world. Or was it kind of just... Okay, Bob, I'll come over and I'll ease into it. How did that transition look? Because I mean, you're looking at leaving a job where you're probably making reasonable income and feeling a bit secure, and suddenly it's like, okay, I'm going to go back into the sporting world. What was that transition like and for you? Yeah,
1: I, you know now the college recruiting program, if you are in it, you have to move to Arizona, but they provide you with things, you know some funding for housing and, Um, you're able to actually make a living off of it back then. Um, when I got recruited in, it was, they were still kind of working on what's the best program. Like, how do we, how do we get these people now to be professionals? And at the time, um, Barb was like, well, you know what? She kind of conceded that I was going to work full time. She said, you can continue to work, but don't you still want to be healthy? And I was like, yeah, of course I'm going to still like work out and do some fun road races and this and that. And she said, well, why don't you just, we can help you. We'll get you a bike. Um, we'll get you a coach to, to work with you for free for a year and we'll just go from there. And, you know, it'll be your little outlet that you were going to do anyway, and we'll see where it goes and, so I was very half in, half out for that first year, which is not good um, as a professional. Was, was that
0: twenty ten? What year was that? Was that 2010? yeah? That
1: was twenty ten. Yep. Yeah. Um, and then I started working part time starting uh, in twenty eleven, and when I qualified in twenty eleven, that's when I was like, okay, I'm going to take a leave of absence. This is when I'm actually going to bunker down and you know fully commit to triathlon.
0: Mm. And and were you working because you worked with Jamie Turner? Was that? Pre twenty twelve Olympics or after twenty twelve Olympics,
1: that was after twenty twelve Olympics. So um, my uh, the coach I was working with in 2011-2012 was Cindy Bannink, and she was in Wisconsin, which is where I was living. Um, absolutely loved her. Um, but you know, I talked with her. I said, you know, after the Olympics, I realized I looked at the people that beat me which everyone beat me. I think I got Well, like, hang
0: on, you did have a puncture and you, it wasn't the most, you're not giving the full story there, but anyway, go, go on.
1: So, um, you know, I looked at those top athletes and I was like, what are they doing that I'm not doing? And I realized they were all in this daily performance environment where their coach was there every day. They had people to train with. And I remember talking to Cindy, my current coach and saying, would you do this? Would you move somewhere with me and see me every day? Cause I probably saw her only once a month. Um, which as a new triathlete, there's so many things that you just need to be like shown and uh, not yelled at, but coached on. And, you know, she, at the time she had a different uh, coaching business and and she just said, look, I I don't think that's the right fit for us. And so I started to look at different coaches and that's when I um, I interviewed a a few and decided Jamie Turner was the one that um, I was going to go with and who I felt like who could help me succeed. And get
0: that olympic gold yeah and he you guys ended up creating a great squad um there were so many athletes uh was it the wollongong wizards you called yourselves or something That's I right. don't, yep. yeah, and, uh, <laughs> and you had a tremendous squad there i know there was a bunch of australians in it Aaron royal i think was in it for yep. a period of time yep. and um you guys you guys had a very strong squad for for well the whole time i remember of your career in triathlon there from 2013 all the way to 2016 and and I mean, you just look at your resume when you had your first World Series win was uh, San Diego in, in 2013, right? I, I, yeah. I think yeah. um, a hometown World Series race must have been an incredible experience. Um, and then I think that year you won three World Series races. You must have finished very high in the, the season that year as well. 2013, you must have been top five or six there as well in the, in the overall I have no idea. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I can look it up for us. I think uh, actually I do have it written down. You, you finished fourth. Oh, and that's why because you only finished fourth because you DNF'd at the the grand final in London. Oh that
1: year. yeah, I do remember that. Yeah, I crashed. And that that was. A, oh, I feel like that was a really rough year for me. You know, you talk about that first win on home soil like that couldn't have been any better. But that mm. whole year, it started out with a DNF. Um, you know, the race before um, San Diego was, I did in, it must've been Auckland and I DNF'd. I remember I came out of the water the first lap. Jamie was just like moving his hand across his, um, throat, like cut it, like just stop. And (laughs) and "What, what is going on? And I did another lap and he's doing it again. I'm like, Oh, stop it. Like I can do this. And I was having a horrible race. And the next lap, I came by and he was gone and that at that moment I was just like you know what I do need to quit like I'm almost <laughs> so I pull off and I I asked somebody somebody standing there was like are you looking for those men that were yelling at me at you because it was uh Jamie and Pat my husband and I'm like yeah and they're like they're in the bar getting a beer and I was like oh my gosh my race, they <laughs> had to go get a beer but you know that that year I had that race that was horrible and then I had a win and then yeah the the world final I remember um, I I I had a good opportunity of winning the world champion, the world championships that year and um, being world champ. And I crashed out and I had previous to that crash, I think in training, I had crashed like two or three times. So I crashed like three or four times within two months. And Mm -hmm. I just remember thinking, I need to quit. I'm horrible. This, I'm just not cut out for this. And so that was actually a, a pretty rough year for me.
0: It's funny you say it was rough. I mean, you 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 won San Diego, you won Yokohama, and then you won <laughs> Stockholm. You you still finished fourth in the World Series. I get it. I get it. Some of those DNFs and when you're really having the sucky race. And if you're in the sport long enough, I mean, you'd only been in it three years, but I've had so many of those races where I'm like, oh, just step off the court. <laughs> you're just embarrassing yourself. And, you know, and, and it, what's also interesting, I always rated myself as one of the, the uber type of bikers, you know, came from non drafting originally. And it was. One, But when I did my retirement note in in, uh, 2016, I started going through my crashes in chronological order from (laughs) 1986 through to, to, and I was up to 33 bike crashes, three of them with cars. And it was like, so even even though you were new to the sport and you were getting a handle on the bike and and everything else, I, I kind of feel like it really is almost just part of the job that you're going to slide out on roundabouts. You're going to, you know, have the occasional crashes. And,
1: um, yeah, and I, Pat, I mean, Pat kept saying to me when I was really struggling, he said, look at the Tour de France riders. They're the best cyclists in the world and mm. they crash all the time. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, I looked at that and I said, yeah. And, you know, he also brought some good perspective in that, um, you got to learn your limits as well on the Mm -hmm. bike. And one way to learn them is, is to crash, you know, that that's too Mm -hmm. far. And then you come back a little bit and there's also just crashes that you can't control that you have no control over. And that year, I think, you know, two of them, I didn't have control over and and two of them were my mistakes completely. And I think when it's your mistake, um, you can, you can live with that and move on. And when it's out of your control, at least for me, I found it. It's just like, what happened if I don't have control over it, what's from stopping it? what's from stopping it happening again? So yeah, it's a hard part of sport. you know, they always say like, you're not a true cyclist, right? Unless you break your collarbone or something.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You didn't break Uh, anything though. Did you you ever break any bones? No, No. I
1: haven't on the bike, thankfully.
0: (laughs) No, me either. I I think I've got reasonably strong bones, but all my tendons and ligaments have been (laughs) stretched (laughs) stretched way too far. Um, But then you went on, I mean, and then just looking at your resume, I've just pulled it up here and I mean, 2014, it's almost like your your pre-season stuff. You still did reasonably well. Auckland, again, wasn't your favorite race of the year, but then you you came along and got a third at Cape Town and then boom. From May 17th, you won Yokohama, London, Chicago, Hamburg, uh, the British Sprint Champs, and then the grand final in Edmonton. So you basically went almost undefeated in 2014 and just an extraordinary year. But then you think it can't get any better. You have 2015 and the perfect season, which I don't know if anybody's done that before. I I had Alistair on, actually, Brownlee last week, and I think he's 2009 he might have gone the perfect season. Well, the ones that he started, I think he did go five or six in a row. But you went that year, Abu Dhabi, Auckland, Gold Coast, Yokohama, London, Hamburg, won the test event in Rio, which was a a World Series points uh, event, and then the grand final in Chicago, which winning on home soil again must have been incredible but what a way to sort of position yourself with as much pressure as possible going into the (laughs) olympic games um and it was almost i look at 2016 then just to carry on this incredible resume that then finally you were beaten on the gold coast uh, and you got second to helen jenkins who was also the last person to beat you um before this run of wins that you had, which was I felt, found quite amusing because Helen's a good friend of ours, and <laughs> and she was the last one and the first one to beat you again, and and I almost feel maybe that was a good thing that that to maybe go into the Olympics, showing for you, maybe yeah. takes the pressure off a little bit. Did that help going into the Olympics losing that race? Yeah. Y-
1: you know, I I don't want to say this because I feel like it makes me sound. Uh, like I'm too confident or something, but I remember I did a race after in, in 2015, after that world triathlon series, I did the Island house race and it was draft non-drafting. And I remember I didn't really train for it that much. And I was like, Oh, Pat, you know, Pat and I thought we were going to get like sixth or something and ended up winning it. And I just remember coming back and saying to Pat, like, even if I try, I can't lose. Like, what is Mm -hmm. happening? This is like the weirdest thing, like what's going on. And I think mentally that was, that was difficult. And, um, you know, then when I, but you can't complain about that.
0: (laughs) No, 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 no. I get where you're coming from and you don't, you don't (laughs) sound arrogant or anything. It's, it's just the nature of the beast when you're in, when you're in the thick of it, you know?
1: Yeah. And then, yeah, I got second at that race in Gold Coast and, um, you know, I think for me, it was great because it showed me some of my weaknesses. And, um, you know, at the same time, I remember I was so upset. Um, and my coach just said, like, look, we're not training for this race this year. All of 2016, the only thing we focused on, the only race specific workouts we did were based on Rio. So we were doing Rio spec from Jan 1. Mm. through Rio the entire year. And and we know that me as an athlete, I need race specific work to perform well. And I think, you know, looking back to get second for something that I wasn't specifically training for is amazing. Mm -hmm. Um, in that moment, moment, you know, you're an athlete, you're competitive, you always want to win. You always want to do better. And, um, yeah, I do think that whole year was actually, I actually went into the Olympics, not feeling pressure, Mm-hmm. Uh, I felt like the pressure was on the other people. I knew that, you know, Flora and, and all these strong cyclists, they needed to break away and I mm-hmm. knew what they needed to do. Um, I knew what they were going to try to do. I feel like all the pressure and focus was on them because people knew that they were the ones that could break it to, um, change the race for me and, and to make it so that I couldn't win. And I went into the race with the mentality of, I just need to do what I do every day. And I mm-hmm. felt very at peace with that. Very calm. Um, I didn't feel a lot of pressure, and and I think that's really unique and um, something that you almost never get, especially in an Olympic race.
0: Well, I think because you prepared, 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 and, and and I remember before that seeing you on a video or something, and you're on the back of a motorbike going down a hill was. Was that yeah. you? and you were practicing cornering on the back of a high-speed motorbike just to get yep. the feel of cornering it. <laughs> I mean I you know what I loved about that because I it's like leave no stone unturned it's yep. what do we need to do and when I trained with Simon Whitfield before the 2000 Olympic Games and I'd been left off the Australian team and was pretty miserable and and he said Greg come over to Canada I was ranked number two in the world so I was a reasonable athlete at the time and <laughs> Come and help me get ready. And I'll never forget Simon and the quality of these champion athletes like yourself, Simon Whitfield, Alistair Brownlee, these Olympic champions that are looking to see every advantage that they can. And Simon did, I mean, we set out a course that was identical run course to the Olympic Games with the same sort of gradient downhill finish and everything about it. That we And we did it for months over and over and over again. Yeah. And, and Alistair Brownlee telling me before London Olympics that he had an 800-metre straight, stretch of road that he'd finish every week this at the end of the week he was tired after a tempo run sprinting it and it was the same left hand turn that they had you know coming back onto serpentine avenue or whatever that he practiced over and over and over again that he knew under fatigue no one could beat him in an 800 meter sprint that was identical to what he trained and and the way you're doing it you know i never forget watching you on the back of that motorbike going okay my strengths are my ability to swim first pack now My strengths are that nobody can run faster than me. Okay, I have a little bit of a weakness still because I'm still only six years into the sport, remember, (laughs) that I need to make sure that I can be there at the end of the bike, that I know these other girls are going to have to make the race happen on the bike to, to have any chance of beating me. And so I just love that, you developed your strengths because I'm a, I'm a big fan of really working your strengths and then doing what you can with your weaknesses. But yeah, you you really did that into Rio and all and, oh, kudos to you because I loved watching that. And, and and the race just panned out exactly how you could have wanted it. You know, Nicholas Spirig and Flora Duffy did everything they could to try and get away. But you were first, second leading the bike a lot of the time. I remember watching going, yeah, grins was, on the front. <laughs> yeah,
1: I also like, I remember smiling in that race and there's actually this picture that I think Nils took of me and I absolutely love it. Like it's the whole pack and everyone has this pain face on and I am just have the biggest grin from ear to ear, just smiling. And I'm like, when have I ever smiled on the bike? But I think it is, you know, a lot of it um having that calm and having that just enjoying that race was because I did. I prepared for four years. Like you said, I did a camp where um you know, I not only rode down um on motorbikes downhills to feel the speed and feel what I could do, but I also worked with um Tim Johnson, who's a cyclocross cross athlete who mm-hmm. you know, taught me how to like do bunny hops and and just get more comfortable on my bike and then had a virtual reality made of the exact Rio course. So I could look at it um, every night with my visual visualization. I was doing little things like my reaction time is bad. It's always been horrible. So um, we had this little like game where um, Pat would drop things and I'd have to quickly grab them and just work on my reaction time. And I did those little things every single day to do like what you said, leave no stone unturned.
0: Mm, I love that reaction time stuff. It takes me back. You know, I had a Dr. Luke Bennett on the show recently and he works with all the Formula One drivers um, and the Formula One drivers reaction times have been recorded as some of the fastest reaction times in the world. And and, and the, the things that these guys do a bit like, Pat and you guys are doing drop the ball and you know you have to try and yep. grab it and that kind of thing is what they do for warm up every time they they race and uh, I, I, I don't know if you've seen there's a, a series on Netflix called Drive to Survive it's a great Formula One I it,
1: um, but I would probably
0: love yeah, it the, I was never into Formula One and then I had a mate that was racing Mark Webber who was racing so you started to get into it and but it's a great series if you even if you're not into it but they show a lot of the drivers all in their preparation exactly what you you were doing but <laughs> no, I, but- I just I just love that. For me, and yeah. and you mentioned visualizing, so let's have a quick conversation about the ment- mental approach, and especially for that Rio Olympics. You know, you were prepared. I'm a big fan of of, of visualizing and, and using some affirmations, and I don't, I haven't used psychologists or anything like that. It's just been sort of within me that, to the point, Laura doesn't let me visualize January, February, March because I, I get fit too quick because I'm so excited. <laughs> But but it's that kind of that ability. So tell me a little bit more about that visualizing. I, I, I think that's extraordinary.
1: Yeah, you know, I, I'm i a big believer in visualizing best case scenario and worst case scenario. So, you know, I, I would visualize, okay, what am I going to do if I get a flat tire? What am I going to do if I get dropped from the bike pack? Am I going to sit on the front and push it? Am I going to wait for maybe somebody that might be behind me that's strong? And, um, you know, so I just visualized all these um, different scenarios. And, Every time though, I would always make sure that I was also, when I was visualizing it, I'd make sure that I was visualizing how painful it would be. I think, (laughs) you know, as athletes, we always have to accept that it is gonna, you are gonna suffer and Mm -hmm. you need to enjoy that suffering, but it's Mm -hmm. gonna be there. It's gonna be so painful, but you can also enjoy it. And so just, I always have that um, in my head as well when I'm visualizing, because you can't just visualize yourself doing well and it being all, rainbows and butterflies because it it hurts it hurts so bad
0: <laughs> I, I i use the example that i have a, a physical visualizing and physical i mean i go out and train and when i'm training on my own if i'm doing say 10 by three minutes or something and and i'm on the trails and and, and during warm-up i start creating all the characters in the event you know all the different people and how they race and they're all in my head yep. and and there's a commentator going and And often in warm-up, you can kind of tell if you're struggling, if you're a bit heavy, it's been a big training load or whatever. And I'll often have to change the... The race scenario a little bit to try and keep it a little bit positive so i 'll say it 's been the most brutal hard bike that we 've ever had, and they 've all gone incredibly fast, but everybody 's off the bike tired legs so I have to have everybody with tired legs before I go out and and then visualize it but it 's amazing how you can turn it around and get yourself going again and and then I have the static visualizing where i 'm on the massage table or whatever and i 'm just sort of visualizing you know a race and stepping through like you said and, and all the different scenarios that could happen um, I think it becomes Easier to visualize when you've done the physical prep. You know, it's hard to visualize if you're kind of like, you know, if you're a 16-year-old kid and you're thinking about winning, you know, Tokyo Olympics and you haven't actually Oh
1: yeah. (laughs) You know,
0: there's a lot of things that have to happen to get to that point and your confidence grows with your visualizing, you know, with the more pats on the back that you get and the more success you have. But that did you use that all the way through your career, or is that really did you start honing it more and more for Rio?
1: Um, you know, I would say I started uh static, uh, visualization. So just like laying in bed before I went to bed every night is when I would visualize usually. And, um, for me, I started right after 2012. So 2013 season. And a lot of times I I felt really fortunate that we had, um, that the world triathlon series races, you could all go back and watch them. So like before Mm -hmm. every race coming up, I'd Rewatch the previous years to see what could happen, to see what the course looked like. And I felt like then I was able to, even if I had never been there, I could still visualize it because I could see it on camera. And I felt so fortunate um, when we had races that um, were the same places every year. I know um, Patrick always wanted to go to different places to see different places and have like a little (laughs) holiday. And I'm like, no, I want the same places. So I know what to expect. I can see what's happened in the past. And um, yeah, so I definitely started visualizing in 2013 and and used it all the way through um, Mm -hmm. the Olympics.
0: I want to talk a little bit about your relationships and your team, because you're somebody, you know, we've mentioned Pat several times through this, um, this chat, and you've mentioned your parents and your family. Um, Tell me about your team and and their roles and, and how you've been able to build this team and how important they are to you.
1: I've said so many times I I wouldn't have won gold in Rio without my team. And Patrick is someone who is so unique. And I think, you know, he's a male supporting a female. And I think that's a very unique situation that not Mm -hmm. many males are willing to do. Not, not many men are able to step back and say, you know what, my wife right now is better and I need to support her. And I think to have that courage and to have that caretaking in him is something that, um, well, it's one of the many reasons I fell in love with him, but it's just such, you have to be so strong to be able to do that. And he used to be a professional athlete, so he knows everything I need and he, he changed sport. I think, you know, I think a lot of people looked at me in triathlon and thought, well, I would do a lot better too if I had somebody that was taking care of me, but anyone could have chose to do that. And Mm -hmm. and other people just didn't, Choose that because it isn't easy, and it's not an easy lifestyle. And you know, Patrick would—I had to do basically nothing. And um, it's a little bit different now with Stanley. I'm taking a little mm. bit uh, more of a role just because he's also taking care of Stan. But you know, in, in triathlon, he do all the grocery shopping, do all the cooking, um, do all the chores, do everything. So literally, all I had to worry about was training and recovering. And, and that made it so that I was able to, I think, have such a a successful career. You know, there weren't those times when I was getting really tired because I had to go to the grocery store or do anything else. And I think it allowed me to, to have that winning streak that we talked about earlier.
0: It's funny. I've watched some of your YouTube shows and, and some of the meals that Pat provides and things, and, and I've often said to Laura, "I wish I was married to Pat myself." You know, <laughs> <laughs> he's, a, he's an extraordinary guy, and and like you said, he he really is. You know, because male ego can get in the way of that. You know, that kind of supportive yeah. role, and it's like no, we're in this team together, and and Laura and I were a team in a different way, in the sense that we were both racing, and we both had to sometimes give a little bit more for the other one and that kind of thing. And th- the the one year we probably did our best year was 2007 where we both kind of hit all our big goals that we wanted. I went undefeated. Laura had an amazing year winning Hy-Vee and things. And, and that was the only year we had a live-in chef and he was also uh-huh. a massage therapist. So it was kind of that and he did the grocery shopping and all those little things that you talk about. And, and look, he was a young guy that we could afford to pay, like, minimal, <laughs> minimal wage. <Yeah. laughs> I gave him a decent bonus at the end of the year. But it was really... You know, I think even for him doing having that carry on, he's like, no, guys, you're going to have to pay me a fair fair bit more. But it really was uh, to be able to be completely intent about your training and your racing without having to worry about the other stuff really does take your performance to the next level. And to have someone like Pat that is on your team, isn't just good at what they do. They truly want the best for you because you're a team. Yeah. And you share the results together. And and you've always been so good at um, celebrating your success as our success, which only makes people want to work with you even more, you know, because they, they now really feel like they're a part of it. Um,
1: what, I think that what, is true. I just – I don't I don't know anyone that could do it on their own. And, I, mm. you know, having that support and having people invest in me, you know, even like I said earlier from an early on in my triathlon career – I wouldn't have been a triathlete if it wasn't for others. And I just feel like I always have to thank them because I know that I wouldn't have accomplished any of it without them. It's just, it's very unique.
0: Well, you've proven that it works. I mean, it's like anybody that wants to be successful you need to have this team around you. And yeah. one of the things we often do when we do work with clients, um, I don't so much coach as I'm or consult these days, but the first thing we do with anybody is say, look, let's build your team. So if I'm going to work with a guy and he says, "Ah, oh, look, I can train 20 hours a week. I'm like, well, let's get your wife on the line and your family because they're going to be a part <laughs> of this journey. Oh, yeah. you have six hours a week we can train. you know, But <laughs> I want the kids to be involved in giving you water on your long run, or I want your yeah. your wife to yeah. be involved because it's it's too hard on your own. And and you've shown it by working with the Wollongong Wizards and Jamie Turner as your squad, and you've had Pat there always as the the, the man to come home to that's providing and everything for you. And and then now with your running career, you, you've definitely gone and sourced out the very best you can with the Balmain Track Club, and and your coach is uh, Jerry Schumacher. And so again, you you've you've gone about and you're going, hey, this worked then, why can't it work now? And yeah, I think that's exactly. great.
1: And I yeah, I think you know. You and Laura trained, I think, very differently than I have. I've always been someone who thrives in a group environment and training with others. And, you Mm. know, actually during this time right now, this stay home where we can't really train in a a big group and train all together, Mm. it's brought me back to, you know what, this is actually a good skill for me to learn, to learn how to push myself in training solo. Like that's actually a really good skill because I feel Mm. like I've relied so heavily on others. And I do believe training with others at least for me is key like i know that if i surround myself with people who are better than me that i either need to rise up to their level or i'm going to fail and so for me you know every day i'm seeing what are they doing um, that I need to do to, to be world-class. And that's something that I've really enjoyed, but you and Laura, you guys haven't really trained in, in big groups. You didn't really train in big groups. Did you?
0: Uh, well in the nineties I did. So I, I was with the, uh, it was a uh, Brett Sutton was a, a big time yep. triathlon coach had probably the most world champions uh, in history. Um, and so I was in a squad with him for four years and then In 2000 and 2004, when I went to train with Simon Whitfield for the 2000 Olympics, I ended up staying in Victoria, Canada, and working with a guy by name, Lance Watson, who was Simon's coach, I used him more as a consultant. I didn't feel like I wanted a coach at the time, but I did train within that kind of group environment for four years. And then post-04 Olympics, Laura and I both decided, okay, let's go out on our own and um, we did spend most of our time together i'd always work with swim squads but i I'd, I'd gotten to the point you know by that stage i was 32 33 and i i have a very big ego <laughs> and I, I got to the, i got to the point i didn't want to race all the time it's and i perfect, found it very yeah. difficult to turn that that competitiveness off and on and so i'd prefer to just be on my own where i didn't have to worry about it and then just go and have dinner with friends rather than train with them and but that was just the way my personality worked i think laura her career would be so much better had i been the pat in her life in the sense that I was still very consumed about my career and my races in the U.S. Um, so Laura ended up spending most of her time staying in the U.S. and then having to travel to Europe backwards and forwards for the for the World Series. And and I think the better thing for her would have been for us to have packed up and gone to Europe and really focused on, on her racing and getting her in a, a proper squad. I think she needed a squad more than I did. Um, so in hindsight, we often talk about, look, I, I did very well financially by – you know, staying in the US. And so as a house, as a business, we did better. But I think in terms of her, her personal career, um it would have been far better had we sort of really just approached it so i I often look back and go i don't know that we fully optimized laura's career um and that was largely because we did have two of us racing at the same time and
1: and and that's the other thing
0: yeah sorry go on you just i
1: mean i feel like you just you you do the best with what you have i mean if you guys were separated as well uh, that wouldn't have been good for either of you and so i think everyone is in in a unique situation and you know you talked about for you personally having an ego and wanting to race. And that's something that I think is a big difference in, in championship people is finding it. You can only, you only have so much mental energy, right? And mm. if you waste it all in practice, you're not going to be able to perform on race mm. day. And and for me, I'm I've always been a big racer and mm. I mentally, I'm just so engaged in these races and I put so much mentally mental energy into it, but I'm able to somehow, not engage in that in, in practice but if you had to engage in that every single day yet yeah, it'd, it'd be impossible to train in a group
0: yeah i didn't have the level of maturity of a, as a lot of the people that i'm interviewing on this podcast i look back and I go wow i really had some insecurity problems which is really what it is it was like i struggled with confidence and, and insecurity and i often say if i could go back and talk to 17 year old greg what would be the number one thing you tell me be more confident You know, everybody's got their struggles, everyone's dealing with something. And I think I went through kind of constantly wondering this imposter syndrome type thing and always trying to prove myself, always trying to prove rather than just doing it on the race course. And I think that was a limiting factor in much of my career. But finally, you know, by sort of 2006, you know, now I'm 34, I changed my winning rate from about eight to 10% to, I was winning one in every two races for about a five year period there and i think a lot of that was just being comfortable in who i am and that i am good at this and i'm okay i don't have to prove myself in the training let's just focus on the racing but you've yeah. also done I, sorry go on
1: oh, i was just going to say you like a, the biggest thing that helped me is having confidence but but respect respect mm. for the course respect for my competitors you know confidence in my ability but also respect knowing that they have that ability too <laughs> yeah,
0: exactly uh, so i just want to move on you've also done really well with your business side um you've gone and recruited Talbot Cox, who we mentioned earlier, to do your media and YouTube channel and a lot of that. You've got a great team around you with the sponsorships that you, you have that have all stayed stayed with you. Have you got somebody that's running all that for you as well?
1: Yeah, so my agent is uh Lindsay and she works for for Wasserman. But yeah, Talbot, I just I feel like I have to tell this story. The the first time I met him was actually at the World Champs in Chicago. Hmm. And I had like won the race and there was uh, drug testing and media and all this stuff. And by the time I exited the race course, it was like an hour and a half, two hours post race. And of course, my family's there, my mom, my dad, my sister and Patrick. And then this guy, Talbot, is standing there with this cutout of my head that's like bigger than my body. And I'm like, who is this weirdo? Why oh, do they no. have a cut out of my head? This is so weird. Huh? Um, I've always struggled with like fans and understanding kind of the idolization and everything like that. So I just remember looking at this and being like, well, he's waited for three hours. Like I need to say hi. And so I took some, <laughs> took some pictures and never thought I'd see that guy again. And like three years or four years later, yeah, he's working with us and He's just done an amazing job. He's actually become family to me. He comes to our house to get some videos. And, you know, I know that he likes honey and bread and toast every morning and mm-hmm. eggs every morning. So we get that. And he's just, he's made it so I'm able to do some content and some media creations because mm-hmm. normally, I'm not really into that. I don't really love that, and I know that that's what I need to do for sponsorship, and 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 because I think it also I've learned it encourages people to get active and motivates people, and that's something I want to do. So it's been really nice to have him do it in a way that's made it easy for me to do, and he just is in the background, and he just feels like family.
0: I don't think there's any other way to do it these days. You know, one of the I was part of that whole transition where if you won a race, you got a magazine cover, maybe a newspaper article, and that was it. And then, you know, the internet came along and social media and and I was always very slow to the task because I was brought up in the generation, you don't talk about yourself, you know. <laughs> you really, yeah. it's like, this, it's almost bragging. And so I, I've right. never been comfortable with, you know, sharing. But then now I'm on the other side of it and I'm really starting to, like, I really enjoy watching what Gwen and Pat and Stanley are up to. It's kind of a fun little... <laughs> You know, 15 minute show and I love the bloopers and all those bits that go with it. And you get an insight into how a champion works. And that's part of why I started this podcast is I, I love getting the inside of the, the mind of a champion. And how do they work yeah. on a daily basis? And it's not all smooth sailing, you know, and that's what you guys clearly show in the in, in your in your show. So it is it is fantastic. I want to keep the show moving on because I know your time is valuable and I know you've got to do a run and things today. But talking about some of the things like you, your sleep and recovery, um, I see you know you've got a big sponsorship partner with with sleep number, your bed and, yeah. and stuff like that. And how critical is that to you? Because you know, I most athletes need to, a tremendous amount of sleep, but do you prioritize it?
1: Oh my goodness. Yes, I am ridiculous. Like I am lights out every night by I put Stanley to bed at eight and then I go to my bed and I watch like an hour of TV, but I'm asleep by 9 thirty every night, and I am really thankful that I have sleep number as a sponsor because when I go on, um, you know, we travel around a lot for training, and I've found that having a bed that's comfortable, is something that allows me to get that quality sleep. And my bed actually tracks things like my breathing rate and my heart rate, my resting heart rate. And I use those things to see how I'm right. recovering as well. And sleep number, when I go on these long um, training trips, they're able to provide me with a bed and it's just been an amazing partnership. And they've been with me almost since day one, along with some sponsors like the Island House and Training Peaks. And um, you know I just feel really fortunate that I have these sponsors that have stuck with me from the beginning of my triathlon career to this transition through surgery, I just I'm blown away with with some of the support that I've been given. And mm. I definitely know that's how we make a living. And um, I'm, I'm so thankful that I'm able to to make a living doing what I love.
0: Yeah, well you've also given them so much as well. I mean, it's it's like this give and take. I mean, when you perform like you did at Rio Olympics, when you perform like you did winning those thirteen races in a row, the World Series races and a couple of world titles. If you're a sponsor and you're getting to rub shoulders, you know, some of them might be more fans than anything, but they're also able to help their product sell more product and 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 so it is a give and a take and it's a good business deal so you're doing fantastic yeah. with all of that and i laughed when you say you, you know you put we have the same routine with our kids and it's been out the same way even before kids we would you know the the saying around boulder colorado is don't call the bennetts after eight because <laughs> we're, we're, we're on lockdown and it's like i'm in bed i mean the amount of times we were eating dinner at 4, 4:30 and watching a couple of shows and then in bed by eight or seven thirty-eight, <laughs> it's like, yeah. you know, that's it. It was a priority for us.
1: <laughs> it is. And I I mean, I really find, you know, you do, they say, and I believe this because I feel it, you get more quality sleep the earlier you go to bed. So if you go to bed at midnight, you're you're missing out on that deep sleep, which happens early on mm-hmm. um in the sleep cycle. So I just think it's, it's a necessity for training and you're just so exhausted. <laughs>
0: yeah, exactly. Well, I remember Brett Sutton, my old coach used to say every hour before midnight is worth two after, you know, so it was like this yeah, mindset yeah. of get to sleep. So what about nutrition? Um, you, you know, you've got Pat, is there any kind of special diet you have, or are you just kind of, you know, well-rounded?
1: No diet. Um, you know, I found, it was interesting for a while in triathlon, I didn't go gluten free, but I found that gluten was making me just feel a little tired. And then when we were living in Europe, I could eat as much gluten as I wanted. I was like, it's just the the processing. And so, you know, I try not to eat a lot of processed foods, but, um, right now I have no races on the schedule. So I'm actually very loose with my diet. Um, mm-hmm. I let myself eat a lot of desserts and, and, and just, yes mentally, I think one thing that uh, Jamie Turner always said about me, one of my strengths, he thought was that I'm naturally lean. And he's like, when you never have to stress about what you're eating, he's like, that's one less stress you have every single day of, yeah. over your competitors. And um, I do feel like I've been really fortunate with that. But yeah, I've, you know, Pat cooks me all my meals. And I'm actually working with Scratch Labs right now, we actually, um, there's a new product coming out that we just Uh, created together, which was super fun. I got to taste test it. And um, uh, yeah, it's specifically for like marathon training. I I can't say too much, but I'm super excited about that coming out. And as well, Alan Lim with Scratch Labs, he'll come to our house sometimes and teach Pat how to cook some things. And I think um, for my birthday, I actually asked Pat to do a FaceTime with Alan to make me something super epic for, for my birthday dinner. So it's been pretty fun to have resources like that to just be able to learn some some new cuisine and and to cook um, and to eat healthy and, and delicious food.
0: Yeah, Alan Lim's an extraordinary guy and what he's done with Scratch Labs. I think he, they're based in, in Boulder as well, aren't they? I think. Right. Maybe, yep, yep. Yeah, I never got to, it's like, I don't know if we went to some of the same parties or something, but I feel like <laughs> we've probably been That's so great. close, but I've never actually got to, to work with him. But I know when I did dabble in doing a couple of Iron I'm like, why didn't I reach out to that guy and do it properly, you know, rather than screwing yeah. it up? But oh my and then God. have you got a good team of bodywork people and, and, and how much massage and, and that chiropractic work are you getting these days?
1: Oh boy. You know, that's probably been my biggest transition in this stay home order. Cause normally I see four different people every single week. Um, I have a massage therapist. I have two different massage therapists, um, Carly and Ryan. I have a dry needler, Ian Wilkinson. I have a PT, Jessica Dorrington, who is actually my, uh, pelvic floor PT who now works, um, on my pelvic floor and additional things. But yeah, you know, I've, I, I can't see them now and it's just, it's been incredible. Pat's been doing a lot more self stuff at home and I have mm. some like side tools that I'm trying to, to work, but it's mostly we, we, uh, this is probably bad, but I, every, almost every other day I'm like, all right, Stan, watch the iPad. Mommy needs a 30 minute massage from daddy. And
0: <laughs> <laughs> That means different things to different families.
1: Yeah, it's, I need like that calf work and I need to like, keep that yeah. stuff loose.
0: And, um,
1: yeah. It's so important. And just with running, it's even more important. Mm. Um, you know, in triathlon I wasn't putting in those specific miles of the same thing over and over again. It was split up over three disciplines. So when you're only running um, I really find that, that keeping the body healthy is something that is, is the, it's probably the most important thing for me. I don't, I know some people like some people on my team only get one, treatment a week and I don't know how they do it. Um, for me, I I know that I respond super, super well to massage. I also know that I never foam roll. I don't really like that. I know a lot of people are like really into that, but there's other things that, um, I just don't like. And I just know I respond really well to, to body work.
0: Yeah, you were the same as me. I I never understood I had a guy, Marcus Mehias, our massage therapist in Boulder, that, or when we had our living guy, but basically every afternoon was either dry needling, massage, or chiropractic work. And it was constant. And and the older I got, the more, the more it happened. (laughs) And and, and it was brutal, but it was really, really necessary for talking about your training. You just mentioned your running miles. I just, I recently just watched you. it was a recent one on how many miles you run and you call them Jerry miles. So you coach Jerry Schumacher. And I love this because there's so many different ways to skin a cat and the way we add it up. And, and and it's hilarious video for anybody that wants to watch Gwen describe her mileage (laughs) and try and do math. was (laughs) was brilliant. <laughs> um,
1: like, I should be better at doing math. Know,
0: that's what I said to Laura. I'm like, she's an accountant. But anyway, it's, <laughs> it's actually just very real and very authentic. And I loved it. But but these Jerry miles, you know, where you basically describe eight minute miles um, yep. is the standard. And so however many minutes of training you do per week, you know, if I do 800 mi- minutes, that's 100 miles. Um, but then you were also able to compare that I did wear a GPS and actually mm-hmm. doing that Meant that I was about, you know, 10% under yep. quoted by saying Jerry Miles. But you're also running up to this hundred mile, like you mentioned earlier, getting ready for Chicago, these hundred mile run weeks compared to what, 50, 60 miles max in triathlon. Yeah. How does I mean that's a, that's a lot of difference on the body and the pounding on your body?
1: Yeah. It was, you know, in, in getting ready for Chicago, I was actually doing 120 Jerry miles, which, um, is a lot. Wow.
0: That's 200 K for people that don't understand miles.
1: <laughs> Jeez. Um, and you know, it just, it took a big toll on the mm. body and it was, it was different. It was a different tire than, than triathlon training. It was a lot more achy and just feeling super old I don't know how else to describe it. Um, mm. It was like this inner, everything in my body, just from like my core outwards, just ached. Mm. Um, And, you know, when you're running that many miles, it's hard to as well get going right away. I'm actually, you know, mm. now when I'm running 80, 90 miles, it, it's easy. I feel like I'm a young spry chicken. I just like, here I go, starting my run. And I'm able to like start a, uh, a decent clip where, as when I'm running 120, it's just, it's hard to get going. Your body just doesn't want to move. And I actually, I kind of thrive on that. I kind of like that almost. Um, I I like the feeling of pushing my body. I like feeling (laughs) sore. I feel like I'm gaining in in those moments. Um, But yeah, so it's been a huge adjustment from triathlon. I remember in triathlon, some of my squad would run hundred K and I think I got up to that once. And I just remember thinking, this is insane. I can't believe they're running 100K every week. Who needs to run this much? This is so much. How are they doing it? Um, and now that's like, basically not nothing to me, but it, it, it would not be a full week of training. So, no. Well,
0: 62 yeah. miles compared to 100, yes. 120 yes. miles. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you've got beautiful. I mean, I'm um, we had uh, one of our chiropractors, Ted Forkham. I don't know if you know Ted in Portland there. And uh, we went to visit him one year. I think we came back from Australia yeah. for Tion and Rini's wedding and a uh, good friend's wedding. And so we had to fly over there. Laura was getting more orthotics and, and we were really on break, but we thought, oh, we'll just go for a half hour run. And we ended up running for two hours plus just because we, we were in the forest and we were just running these beautiful trails. And honestly, it was one of our favorite running places of all time just getting lost in the woods on these beautiful trails i mean it really is a it's almost meditation rather than running you know for the mind and the soul it just felt so fantastic so you're in a great environment for those big miles
1: yes i do i do really enjoy training here in portland there's um you know i run mostly just on on campus on nike um, but there are so many trails and um it, I, I really like the weather here too. I know that a lot of people complain about it in the winter and it, it's kind of rainy, but it, it's never like super cold and I just hate training in cold weather. So, um, you know, I really, in the summer here, it's beautiful. It's sunny and like 60 or 70 every single day. And, um, I have a bunch of different routes I can do for my house, which I also love. I love being able to run from the door when I can. Mm, so, mm. Yeah, it's a great environment for running.
0: No, it's a perfect. When we trained up in Victoria, Canada, that that Northwest is just such a beautiful part of the world, and and we've yeah. talked about we could easily move back there. I think we've we're so tired of really really hot summers, and and. <laughs> I mean, I've avoided, I've avoided winter my whole life, but yeah. um, I do just love that that getting out on the trails and running. So, just to finish up, um, any sort of gear recommendations or anything else? I know you're you're running in the Nike shoes now, so that was a change from your previous sponsor, and you yeah. know you're in those Zoom Next Percents. You're racing in those? Do I see you in those? I think I yeah, yeah. I've
1: been I've been training a lot in the Next Percents. Um, I do think those have been a game changer. Um, mm. and you- all the other brands now kind of following suit. Um, but for a while, like when I was training for the marathon, I, I just felt like there's no other running company I could be with. Cause I really do feel like these shoes are, are amazing for me. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's been amazing. You know, I think I I've been really into, um, my Rudy project pro pulse sunglasses lately. Um, they've been super light. And I think, you know, as a triathlete, we wear sunglasses, but runners don't really wear sunglasses. I've noticed, which is interesting to me (laughs) um, because I I just feel like you need to protect your eyes. There's Mm. bugs that can come flying in or the wind or even from rain. Um, I just feel like wearing sunglasses is a, is a health thing. Mm -hmm. Um, And so to find a pair of sunglasses that I like, that I enjoy, that are lightweight, that I can see fully out of. um, And sometimes I like, wearing sunglasses when I race, because then people can't really see your game face. Um so yeah, I feel like that's a, a gear thing that I've I've definitely um mm-hmm. enjoyed. I'm actually still sponsored by specialize as well, which is pretty um incredible just after, you know, I'm not really riding my bike a ton. Um and then Zwift, I think Zwift has been a game changer. And that's something that um I used a ton. You know, we talked earlier about when you're recovering from surgery or you have injury and you can't compete. I used Zwift when I was able to bike and not run and just did all these Zwift bike races. And I just, it gave me everything I needed. It gave me that competitiveness. It allowed me to get build that base back up in a fun, creative way. And um, I do some runs on Zwift now too, especially now that I'm trying to stay home a little bit more with the stay home order. And it's just been something that's super enjoyable and, and makes trainer rides and and treadmill runs which I never used to enjoy actually really really enjoyable
0: I know I wish I had them during my career to be honest it's like that I think I think you're mad to not have it did you have an expert come and set your house up because somebody who's not technology inclined do they have does Zwift send out people that help you out or did you you guys just set it up yourself
1: so um, we actually we set it up um, at our house ourselves Um, somebody came and delivered. A treadmill, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. But um, besides that, yeah, um, Zwift helped us figure out like what we needed. I actually have a couple episodes on my YouTube channel about what you okay. need and how to set it up. But I mean, all you really need is an iPhone. It's a lot better if you have a TV, um,
0: yeah.
1: but you can do it from iPhone, iPad, and it's super easy, super quick to set up.
0: Awesome, awesome, Gwen. This has been absolutely fantastic, and honestly, I could keep talking to you for hours. I've actually really, really <laughs> enjoyed this. You know what I mean? It's like, I'm sorry Aww. for everybody listening, if we've rabbited it on too much, but this has been a real, real pleasure. For know, me. It, yeah, it really has. And honestly, you're an incredible person. You, you really are staying very true to yourself um, and what your passions are in life. And I think that's that's really refreshing, but really critical if you want to reach the top of the world. And I, I just, I just love that about you. I think you, you're being very honest. Um, but everybody, thank you so much for listening. Uh, this has been a real treat for me, Gwen. Thank you so much. Stay on the line. Um, been wonderful. <laughs> <Thank> you, Greg. <Graham. laughs> All right.